Hear the word of the Lord from the Gospel according to Matthew, reading Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. Let us hear with reverence and joy and hear in faith. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. The wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him, to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Christianity is uh, always confronting uh, enemies, simply the nature of the faith. Uh, But this morning we uh, struggle with a very difficult enemy, namely an enemy from within. Our Lord is preaching to a confessional church, speaking to the church of Jesus Christ that is a mixed company, brings to us, I think, one of the most powerful sermons in all of the Scripture, all of that discourse, Ten Bridesmaids. He speaks of many things. I think one of those things is the shallow nominalism that is so present in the church today. The appearance of faith absent the power. And so he speaks uh, this sermon again to the body, the ranks of the people of God. And what strikes at us from this sermon is that there's a terrible wrong and there's a great division that occurs at the end of the age. For some are accepted and some within the ranks of the community of the faith are rejected. Makes it a difficult text to struggle with. We, I suspect, don't think in those terms. Join a church at some point in our lives and perhaps we hang around it, perhaps we come in and out of excitement of the Word of God. Uh, Sometimes we wander. Do we not? This sermon is written to just such a people. Remind us that there is a 
decisive difference between nominal Christianity and the real thing. And I trust the wisdom to discern the decisive difference. Our text really is telling us something we already know because we've heard it before. And that is that readiness and continual preparation is ongoing until the Lord comes. The struggle, of course, is with ongoing, is it not? Because the Lord delays in his coming. So again, we've heard this by simple repetition. It's an intimate part of the Olivet Discourse. This is just simply a relook at what we already know. Obviously, the matter is grave. How would you like to stand before the Lord at the end of the age and have him say, I never knew you? That's pretty serious stuff. That's about as serious as it gets. Meaning that all along the way in your Christian experience, you either self-deceived or you were deceived by someone else. That is tough, but that is the lesson. That's why I think perhaps the application of the parable is encompassed by repetition. We've heard the sermon before. Simply look at it from a decisive angle that stirs us, I think, to the very core of our being. Because again, one half of the party of the ten bridesmaids goes expecting to enter, but they're rejected. Again, we've also heard this sermon before in terms of, say, Matthew 13. The church is a mixed company. A man goes out and plants seed, and immediately the seed sprouts up, and then in the night uh, the enemy comes and sows a different seed, and it sprouts up as well. And the planter goes to the owner of the land and says, well, should we go and tear down all the weeds? He says, no, wait. Wait till the end of the age. And then our Lord interprets the sermon in this way, the angels at the end of the age will make the cut. Really? There's going to be a cut? Yes, indeed. But it's done by the angels at the end of the age. The winnowing fork is in the Lord's hands. Meaning that we as Christians understand that the church is mixed, but that we should continue to engage in love and good works. That is what we know and that is our business. We are reminded that there is a heavy price to be paid for those who play fast and loose with the Lord Christ. The historic context is that of a wedding party leaving the home of the bride and going to the home of the groom to begin the celebration of a new life together. Again, a marriage ceremony in the days of our Lord, the ancient Near East. The wedding party is delayed. Again, we've studied this lesson before. The Lord delays in his coming, in his sovereign choice to delay. And in that delay, 
we look at two different parties, and what we look at should stir us. The interplay is between the wise and the foolish. It's really the lesson of the of the parable. In other words, understand that the church is mixed with wise and foolish people. With the reality of the deception of the foolish and their ultimate rejection. I would simply remind you that they are surprised that they are being rejected. And that surprise is meant to purify each of us to continue manifestly in love and good works until the end of the age. Let's look at an anatomy of rejection and folly. Foolish bridesmaids. The evidence of of, uh, their rejection is seen in the reality that they've, they've been deceived. That's why they're surprised. And sometimes deception is a very difficult thing. Uh, I, I think we can deceive ourselves. Uh, we begin to tell a story about our lives. We begin to believe it. It may not be true, but we begin to believe our own story. Yeah, be very careful about keeping your own scorecard. That's why the scriptures and their exposition are so manifestly important. They take the scorecard out of our hands, place it in the hand of God, in His living Word. Scripture is meant to search our hearts, divide the soul from the flesh, purify us. But again, sometimes deception is not a self-act. It simply comes when deception comes into the church and is adopted by the church. That is even much more insidious, incipient, because of its manifest danger. We don't think in those terms. We think, well, uh, uh, the, the, the name of the church is written on the building, therefore it must be the church. Well, that's not the question. The question is, the church is mixed. Is it true or false? The five foolish bridesmaids are found to be false, and the door of eternity is closed in their face. That's tough. But the longer the delay occurs, the more deception, I think, is pronounced in the life of the confessional church. You see it everywhere in America. We're confused over doctrine. We embrace feelings over against truth. Uh, We are affirming in alternative lifestyles. Uh, A friend of mine called me this week, uh, uh, over an academic catalog that he had received from a very prominent Christian publishing company. And some of the books were affirming lifestyles that are clearly rejected in the Scripture. The Word of God is the Word of God. But again, that's a reminder that uh, sometimes a rejection and deception go together and enter the life of God's people and uh, the danger is pronounced. The foolish virgins, of course, see themselves as part of the faith. They fail to reckon with the reality that the church is a mixed body of visible and invisible. They have lamps 
perhaps attesting to the appearance of witness. When you look at the ten, in terms of appearance, you could not tell the difference. The word lamp can also be translated torches, but I take it as it is here, lamps. Attesting to their appearance, church, and their life-giving witness to Christ. They are part of the same body until the end. Membership is no guarantee. Baptisms are no guarantee. I try to remind my sons very often, you were baptized. It's not just the act, it's live it. What does it mean? Live it. You're made new. Live it. I understand personally from my interpretation of the text is that all of the bridesmaids have oil in their lamps. But five have not prepared for a long wait and have no extra backup or supplies. Look at Verse 4, Matthew 25, But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. So they have oil in their lamps, but they also have flasks. They have a backup supply. Meaning that they're prepared. They're going to be prepared. In other words, the five foolish have some oil, but not enough. I know how dangerous it is not to have enough when the Lord comes. We could say simply that they're not prepared for the long haul. It is a wonderful reminder uh, that people come in and out of the church but that our summons is to the long haul to go the distance, to stay the course. If we fall down, we get up, we confess, and we go on. Another challenge here to appearances is the failure to prepare. Verse 7, Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. In confession, they not only look like the wise, but in confession they are the same as the wise bridesmaids. They call Jesus Lord. It's our reminder that it's not how you begin, it's not how you look. Many begin well, professions are good, but living it is the real deal. And the five fail in the urgency of readiness to the end. They also fail in something that's most instructive, I think, in the verses that I just read, and that is that you can rely on someone else to give you help when the Lord comes. They turn to the five wise and say, well, give us some of your oil. We've run out. You cannot get your faith from someone else. You cannot borrow it. 
It's one of the challenges of young people, is it not? They grow up in a Christian home. Well, my mom and dad are Christians. I, I guess I am too. But again, it's much deeper than that. You have to own it personally. And by the way, it should own you. Because that is the point of the real deal. That the faith comes to own you. You cannot trust the presence or works of another. It's one of the great differences, I think, in churches today. There are many in professing Christianity who uh, receive uh, grace from the priest. It is our reminder from this text that you cannot stand before God and say, another man gave it to me. And I trusted him. Because that will not do. Appearances can be deceiving, for in appearance they are the same until the very end. And at the very end, it is too late to recover. In that sense, the point of text is to purify us. Because that's what the future is going to look like. The church is going to be divided between true and false. The angels will go and make a decisive separation between the wheat and the tares. The point is the proper application to purify us, to be so numbered among the faithful. Part of the deception is the failure to heed warnings. I remind you, as I have on occasion, uh, that the New Testament Old Testament, filled with warnings to the visible people of God, warning them of danger. Our lives are filled with warnings. Our doctors and physicians warn us. Street signs warn us. So does the Word of God. That's why continual hearing of the Word is so critically important, to take heed to warnings. We've really heard this sermon before. But the repetition, the decisiveness of the reality is uh, purifying, to say the least. In verse 22, the parable teaches us, pardon me, chapter 22, the parable teaches us that a pretender finds his way into a wedding feast. Conceptual parallel with the event here, Matthew 25. But he is found out and cast out. Again, Matthew 22, uh, verses 11 to 13. But then the king came in and looked over the dinner guests, and he saw there a man not dressed in wedding clothes. He said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and cast him to the outer darkness in that place where there should be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's in the church, but he's found out to be a pretender. Really, it's the same sermon of Matthew 25, just from a different angle. How would you like at the end of the age to king to say, you're not dressed properly and throw you out? Point of the text. We don't think in those terms. but Jesus did, and we ought to. To purify us protect us against deception, to give our hearts to love and to good works, 
Ephesians 4.24, the Apostle Paul says, put on the new man in holiness. We are men made new by the creative power of Jesus Christ. I understand the progress of that is throughout our lives, but let it be so throughout our lives and not in fits and starts and comings and goings and taking long sabbaticals and thinking I've reached a point in my life where I don't need it anymore. All that is folly. But that is the point of the text. You can deceive men. I'm easily deceived, but not the Almighty or the angels that are dispatched to make the great separation. In chapter 21, verse 19, there's a fig tree that from a distance appears to have fruit, but on closer inspection is totally barren. And Jesus curses it, and it withers, never ever to bear fruit again. He is hungry. He wants a meal. You and I are to be fructified by the power of the word, to bear fruit for the glory of God. May God watch over us, lest we be found barren at the end of the age. Again, the same sermon is found in a measure in Matthew 13. There's a man who receives the word of God with joy. Visibly, he comes to faith. But he has no firm root. The text speaks to a temporary faith. When persecution comes because of the word, he falls away. Matthew 13, verses 20 and 21. And now the one on whom seed was sown on rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet, he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arise because of the word, immediately he falls away. Now I know that there are many in the church who believe that that could be a true Christian, but I simply take it otherwise. He falls away. He has a temporary faith. I understand in the reality of the church that there are many who have a temporary faith. I don't know the difference, but the Lord does. It's a reminder that our faith is to be permanent. We don't just believe, we continue believing. I understand that coming to Christ is a one-time event from our Lord's perspective. When He creates new life, He creates it. And is sure and firm to produce firm and life to the end. I simply understand the reality that sometimes seed is sown, life of the church, it falls upon a rocky heart. There's no firm root. And when trouble comes, fall away. I trust you are old enough as a child of the faith that you and your life have seen people come in the church and then at some point they leave never to return. I don't know the end state of that person's faith. I'm not given to know. I don't have to know. What I know is that the angels at the end of the age will make the separation. 
our reminder from this sermon, the Olivet Discourse, is to continue to prepare, to continue to manifest your identity as a Christian. If you fall down, confess and get up and go the end. Go the distance. Plead the Spirit of God to remain close to you as He does to His people. That there is such a thing as a temporary faith that is totally different from the real deal, genuine faith that continues on and goes to the end. The greatest parallel, as you know, this sermon's already been preached. Matthew chapter 7. If you have your New Testament, I trust you turn there. And please don't turn there with the notion that the Sparrow really believe in the assurance of the believer. Of course I do. I'm just simply acknowledging the reality in the Gospel of Matthew that there is such a thing as a temporary faith. From the divine perspective, all those whom Christ purchased upon the cross are saved. They're going to be saved. And they're saved forever. But the allowance of the text is to a temporary faith in some who fall away. Matthew chapter 7. The context is a warning of those who embrace a false view of the kingdom. Again, deception comes into the visible people of God. And sometimes the visible people of God adopt a false view of the kingdom. How do we know that it's false? Because Jesus tells us it's false. He speaks of two gates, two ways, and two bands of travelers, and two destinations. The deceived take the broad way. I mean, I understand You want to go the hard way or the easy way? We're all going to raise our hand for the easy way, and that's what Jesus is teaching us. That the way to the faith, the way to the right destination is narrow and difficult. Sometimes you have to squeeze yourself in. It is hard. Persecution, strife comes. We want to quit, but we cannot because of the grace of God. But the way that is broad leads to destruction. The deceived follow false prophets, verse 15, who are wolves dressed as sheep and who fail to reckon with the fruitless life and the presence of deception in the visible church. We don't think in those terms, but we ought to. That sometimes pulpits are filled with wolves dressed as sheep and they will not spare the flock. The Apostle Paul, sermon to the Ephesian church and its elders. He says, even men from your own selves will rise up, not sparing the flock. It's a reminder that sometimes pulpits are filled with wolves. And that you must learn to be able to pierce the reality of the difference. And if a wolf is present, beat a hasty retreat because of the danger. Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 to 23. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name did we not cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles. And what greater proof of the faith than you want that someone's performing miracles? Seems to be real, isn't it? 
Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Again, I'm not making the distinction. Jesus is. But the distinction is difficult. It is a reminder that activity in and of itself may be false. I will tell you that there are counterfeit miracles. The kingdom of darkness has signs and wonders, but they're all lies. Be careful about accepting lies. If you're simply practicing the external aspects of the faith, realize that activity in and of itself is not salvific. Of course, in our case here, deception fails in the journey. It fails in appearances, to be sure. You and I must be more than simply nominal Christians or Christians in name only. But of course, the deception fails in the journey. We come sometimes to think that we don't have to be ready. Our associations and memberships are enough. I had a grandmother once tell me, long ago and far away, she played the piano in, she named a prominent Christian denomination. I will tell you the Christian faith is more than playing the piano. That's a good thing to be sure, but is it enough? That is the point of the text. Is it enough? It's a reminder, of course, if you're not a Christian, that the only work that will ultimately avail for you is the permanency and decisiveness of the work of Christ on your behalf. But he dispatches the Spirit to make us new continually throughout our lives. At Grace Bible Church, we borrow a motto from the Protestant Reformation that we are reformed, but we are always reforming in our confession and in our lives because temporary is never enough. Always reforming in our lives and in our confessions because men wax and wane. And therefore, the reality of the faith must own us as much as we profess to own it. Sometimes we come to believe that our faith is seasonal. We have children, so you have children. At some point, you're going to get in line to do the nursery deal. At some point, you're going to get in line to do Sunday school. Oh, praise God, my children graduated. I can drop out because I've done my deal. You're never done doing the deal. It's a continual life of serving the church, however God has so gifted you, and that he has. And gifts are to be continually performed in the service of the great king, continually in the life of the church. I understand that our faith is a personal faith, also a corporate faith. Christ died for the church. We practice our gifts, of course, on a personal level, perhaps on the streets where we live or at work, but we come to practice them in the church, to protect the church, for the glory of Christ in the church, for Him who is head of the church. 
for the advancement of his kingdom. Seasonal is not enough. Sometimes we come to believe, as a very prominent evangelicals today, that there are two classes of Christians, uh, those who believe in Christ and then the disciples. As long as I believe in him, or have believed in him at some point in my life, that's, that's enough. Though, now those disciples, they're the real committed and that's good, but I don't have to be a disciple. If that's your view, reread the Gospel of Matthew, please. We're to be followers of Christ. We don't just start, we follow all along the way. And all along the way, He gives His Spirit to keep us in the truth and in the life of the faith. I'm just simply saying from this sermon, we can say a little is not enough. Half-heartedness is insufficient. You cannot take the easy way and come to the same end. It's the whole point of the context of Matthew 7. The way is narrow, and few are those who find it. The way that leads to destruction is broad. And many are on it. May God make us wise to heed the difference. Because the difference is pronounced and decisive and forever. Well, the deception reaches a terminal point, does it not? As it always does. At some points, we, we do engage in self-trickery. Or others trick us, but eventually the tricks are discovered. The five foolish bridesmaids are late to the celebration and the door, again, look at Matthew chapter 25 and verse 10. And the door was shut before they arrived. Some of the most chilling words I've ever read in all the scripture. It's like to show up to a party expecting that you're going to get in. Hey Lord, I got my ticket. The door was shut. They say, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But the work of falsehood is now complete and final. Matthew 25, the twelfth verse. But he answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. It's not a statement on behalf of our Lord of cognitive failure. He knew exactly who they were. That is the point. They did not properly or truly know him. And so they are rejected forever. A complete rejection from which there is no possibility of recovery. That is so difficult. Over time. Over time to recover. Over time to repent. Over time to relearn, to practice. Over time to plead the Spirit of God to work, to bear fruit for the glory of God. But time is now gone. 
the door is shut. Parallel text, I think, that's most instructive. Reminder that part of the issue of the foolish virgins is they rejected discipleship. They rejected continual preparation. They rejected readiness throughout the time. Luke chapter 13 is a reminder of this. Beginning to read in the 24th verse, Strive to enter by the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And once the head of the household gets up and shuts the door and begins to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us, then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. And then you will say, but Lord, we ate and drank in your presence and and you taught us in the streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all ye evildoers. The Lord is affecting the separation at the end of the age. We can say, well, Lord, I I practiced this gift and that gift and I I attended the sacrament of the Lord's table every now and then. I, I ate and drank with you. The Lord is affecting a separation that is final and absolute. Meaning many things, but certainly our faith is more in name only. Our faith is not simply wearing something. Simply tell you from the theology of Matthew, embraces discipleship. Easy to profess, but profession minus discipleship will eventually be discovered. At the end of the age, it's discovered by the angels and by the head of the household. But let me tell you something that's most radical for each of us to understand this morning. All of us are prone to be deceived, and we are certainly prone to self-deceive ourselves. But I will tell you the great message is that deception in the church is curable. The wise understand that the church is a mixed company, visible and invisible. But an essential to wisdom is following the shepherd. Following the shepherd. As a young man, I joined many organizations. I was a Cub Scout. I'm no longer a Cub Scout. I left it. I was a Boy Scout. I'm no longer a Boy Scout. I left it. I was a high school student. I am no longer a high school student. I trust in the grace of God. I've trusted Christ as my only Redeemer. Because He is with me, I have not left Him. The reality is it not of the great sermon of John chapter 10. The sermon of the good shepherd. John chapter 10, the 14th verse. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. I know my own. Christ came to redeem his own. He knows them. He came to save them. And he loses none of those given to him by the Father. 
and my own know me. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I've been a follower of many callings and many teachers throughout my life, just as you have. But in following Christ is a continual event that never lets up. It's a fall, it's a following that you come to embrace as a Christian, only to learn that it has embraced you. It is a calling that's a reminder that in the church, John chapter 10 and verse 5, there are many strangers. And the true people of God flee strangers. I, I tell you as a Christian, I struggle with that. Because I, as I watch and study and see decisive change in the life of church, I know instinctively that strangers have been adopted as the real deal. And I say to myself, why, why are people still there? Because the true sheep reject strangers and follow the true shepherd. Not as a one-time event. Not as every now and then, but continually, repeatedly. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. All of us embrace the assurance of the faith. We'll embrace following as well. Because they both go together. And the foolish bridesmaids failed in understanding that decisive reality. A second essential to our identity is that we are always manifesting who we are. The wise grasp the summons of continual vigilance, Matthew 25 and verse 13. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. Therefore, you're always ready, always preparing. And yes, we stumble. It's not a life of continual perfection, but we are given the great gift of confession and repentance and embracing anew the reality of the Word of God, always ready, always getting ready in light of the coming. Key element in our story is the five took an additional vessel of oil. By application, they continue in their light-giving function as Christians. what we are. We don't just carry around a lamp. We are the lamp, giving light to a lost world, to those in need, the only Redeemer of the people of God. It's the reality of Ephesians chapter 5 in the 8th verse. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light, and the Lord will walk as children of light. It's a great reminder, uh, while the word is different, but the church is identified as the lampstand. The holy of holies or the holy place and tabernacle, there was a lampstand. Priests were always bringing oil so that the lights would not go out. You and I are now the lampstand. And the grace of God that we would not go out, that our witness would not flicker. 
when it does, we learn to lay hold of confession and repentance. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20, John says, the seven churches are the seven lampstands. That is what we are as Grace Bible Church, a lampstand attesting to reality of light in Jesus Christ. And outside of him, there is total darkness. Let's live that way. Help one another to be lights to the world which we live. i give you a third essential that It's a reminder of the grace of God in this great endeavor to be numbered among the wise. Ultimate reality to our life-giving function as Christians is the Spirit of God. Absent Him, our flames would all flicker and eventually go out. And God gifts His people with the Spirit. It's a wonderful illustration of this in Revelation chapter 7. I ask you to turn in your New Testament there. Verses 2 and 3, And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. So the servants of God are going to be sealed. Speaks to protection, speaks to ownership, that God owns us and that God protects us. The context is the outpouring of judgment, but before the event begins, the servants of God are sealed. Again, if it were not for the Spirit and His protecting us, all of us would deceive ourselves or fall prey to deception. Satan is much too good of a counterfeiter. And the only difference between us and those who have been counterfeited or hold to counterfeits is the Spirit of the living God who seals us because He owns us. There's a couple of important Old Testament parallels here, are there not? Great act of redemption of the nation. Exodus chapter 12. We know this context is Passover. Uh, but those who obey the word of God mark their homes with the blood of the Lamb. Why is that so significant? Because of the angel of death that's going to come upon the entire land. And wherever there is a household that is not so marked, the death of the firstborn is going to occur. In fact, it did occur. Exodus chapter 12, verse 13. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. That's reduplicated in our lives presently. As the spirit of counterfeits go out, because we are marked by the ownership of God, they pass over us. Thank God for His grace. Verse 23. For the Lord will pass through you to smite the Egyptians when He sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts. The Lord will pass over the door, will not allow the destroyer to come into your house to smite you. How did we come to faith? But Christ came into the house of the strong man and bound him. 
to prevent him from deceiving us, to mark us as belonging to him, protecting us from the counterfeits. You have a real problem with this in America today. Counterfeits. Counterfeit auto parts that come from different places of the world. I have a good friend of mine, who, well, I say good friend, he's an acquaintance of mine who's a coin collector. He says, oh my, the counterfeits that come out of China, silver and gold are incredible. If you're not good, you're going to take it for the real deal. But they're wrong, they're false. How do we get so smart? We don't, we get the Spirit who makes us to know the difference, who turns us away from the stranger that we might believe in him was true and alive forever and ever. So another picture of this in the Old Testament, prophet Ezekiel, chapter chapter 9. Reminder that in the true body of confessional church, there is a faithful remnant that's marked. Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. Abominations being committed in the assembly of the Old Testament church. And now a man goes and marks the true, the faithful, who are weary of all the idolatry and the immorality. But to the others he said in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike, and do not let your eye have pity, and do not spare. Simply, Old Testament analog the parable of the ten bridesmaids. Our reminder that God so marks the people that we remain true to the end. It's interesting, is it not, in verse 2 of uh, Revelation 7, that the seal is from the living God. In other words, he is the source, and absent him the unsealed are deceived forever. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Spirit is the seal. Again, the Spirit comes to seal us. By the way, no such thing as a Christian who does not have the Spirit. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, if you're a son of God, you're being led by the Spirit of God. There's no such thing as a son that does not have the Spirit. Many in the church believe that uh, there is such a thing as you can have the Son, but not the Spirit. That's an impossibility. When you become a Christian, you get the entire Trinity. The Spirit comes to lead you and guide you in the path, even though it's narrow. He is the one leading and guiding you all along the way. To bifurcate the Christian faith, I think, to me is folly, but so it is. There's not a second work of grace. You have all of grace. But again, the Spirit of God comes to seal us, to mark us, to stamp us. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 4. In him, Ephesians 1.13, namely in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The voice here is passive, meaning God acted upon you to seal you. 
It conjures up in the ancient Near East that uh, if a king were to send a letter, uh, the letter would be stamped with the seal of the kingdom. And woe to any man who broke that seal other than to him who was addressed to, lest all the forces of the kingdom come to destroy him. That God has stamped upon us the name of Jesus Christ. We are addressed to eternity. No one can break that seal. All the counterfeits and strangers of the world can come and knock upon our door, but they will ultimately pass us by because of the seal of the Spirit of the living God. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, it's the same reality. It's what makes us different, numbers us among the five. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, the day of your glory, the day of the coming of Christ. In other words, we owe our vigilance to the actions of the Trinity. Well, the sermon is to be vigilant, to be ready, to be always preparing, to be numbered among the five, only to learn that the Spirit of God comes and makes it so. My friend, you can call that many things. I choose to call it this morning the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you find yourself engaging in fits and starts and waxing and waning, of coming and going in the church, recheck the gospel. Him who's the head of the church who dispatches his spirit to everyone who names his name. We, we struggle in the duty only to learn that the spirit of God is given to us to purify us all along the way. And all along the way, the forces of darkness and even divine wrath pass over us because of the grace of God. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The apostle Peter says it this way, we are protected by the power of God. It's the age-old conundrum of duty, responsibility, and grace. But it is our reminder this morning that absent God's power, we would be numbered among the foolish and the door would close upon us at the end of the age. The text is really written to awaken us to the moral imperative of the Christian faith. Be careful of strangers. Be continually preparing, confessing, repenting, reading, studying. Faithful in your witness and faithful in your ministry in the life of the church. All of these things. And God in His grace so gifts you by the power of His Spirit. Otherwise, you would fall away and be numbered among the foolish. If you're not a Christian, I can only tell you that you will not make it. You're in darkness and you will never make it to the light until you come to Christ. May God be gracious to you and grant you to know, to flee, to embrace, to follow, to commit. And for all of us who struggle all along the way with following, as we all do, that's why we have the church, to pray for one another, to encourage one another, and to continue preaching the word of God that it might search our hearts. That at the end of the age, we wouldn't be surprised when the door is shut. And there is no occasion to fix it. The wise are disciples and followers of Jesus. The foolish 
have mere appearance. They look like it, but they are absent the power. May God in His grace purify our faith. May at Grace Bible Church, there be the continual preaching of the Word of God that the reality would come to own us. That we would enter into the joy of our salvation and the knowledge of Him who has redeemed us and given to us a full measure of the Spirit to keep us all along the way so that we at the end of the age will go into the end to receive the reward of the faith. May God bless us in these ends and continue to so purify us that we can have the abiding assurance that we belong to Jesus and he has made it so. Amen.